0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Hey, fans of the Eater Upsell, this is Daniel Janine, co host of the show. This week we are running instead of food stories, which will be back next week, I promise. And then going forward with so much consistency, that uh, it's going to be absolutely astounding. But this week we have an episode also from the Vox Media Podcast Network from our sister site, Curbed, which covers homes, cities, and communities. Um, It's very good. The show is called Nice Try, and it's about man's never-ending search for the perfect place. Each season you're going to hear stories about people who tried to design a better world and what happened when those designs didn't go according to plan. This season is called Utopian, and it's hosted by Avery Truffleman, who you might know from 99% Invisible. I, I, I'm going to let her take it from here. I, I Quickly, I will tell you that uh, it, this show is great for me because it is little bite-sized nuggets of history that are all driving at one thing, and... Uh, Even in this episode, I learned so much about the Virginia Company and colonization that I didn't know before, so I hope you like it, and uh, here it is.
2: Listen to those birds just chatting it up. The Huntington Library in San Marino, California is like heaven by any metric. It just smells like a million flowers in the air. It has a thicket of palm trees that greet you as you walk in and meandering paths that weave around water fountains and fiery aloe vera plants taller than you. The paths fork all over the campus, to the Chinese garden, the Japanese garden, the botanical center, multiple art galleries, a cafe where they make fresh scones every day, and the library. Oh my god, the library. A lot of Hollywood movies and television shows use the library as a stand-in for the White House grounds, Iron Man, The West Wing, Charlie's Angels, Scandal. But this library houses the grand collection of railway magnate Henry Huntington. He loved books.
3: My name is Olga Sapina. I'm the Norris Foundation Curator of American History here at the Huntington. Just to give people an mm-hmm. idea of
2: the collection here at Huntington, mm-hmm. what's the scale that you're working with? How much time you've got? <laughs> um, scale- Henry Huntington amassed the core of this library— which now has over 11 million items, including manuscripts, rare books, prints, letters from Abraham Lincoln and Susan B. Anthony. There's a Gutenberg Bible, drafts of Thoreau's Walden, Jack London's White Fang, Octavia Butler, Mark Twain, John Audubon's magnificent work, The Birds of America, all here under the palm trees. And among these volumes is a 1518 edition of Utopia by Thomas More. This is the book that coined the word Utopia. It's about a magical island founded by a general named Utopus. It's governed by rational thought, religious tolerance, communal property, and no class distinctions. I thought maybe Huntington had read this book and decided to found his own Utopia here in San Marino. But his historians weren't indulging me. They insisted Huntington was no utopian, that he was a pragmatist, that if you zoom back from the grander You see, he and his wife, Arabella, were just doing a very human thing, just trying to make the perfect home for themselves, a perfect place, which is a thing we all do. We may not be striving for the ideal society like utopists when we build our communities and pick out posters and furniture and our books, but Henry Huntington was up there with the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. These men who were able to come to a new land and build it up with trains and ports and dig up oil and manufacture steel, they were titans, building on a long American
3: success story, a story that started in Jamestown. Every person basically had their favorite foundational moment of America.
2: Maybe it's the landing of the Mayflower. Maybe it's the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Maybe it's the drafting of the Constitution. But the Jamestown obviously was the earliest which is we can't argue with that. The Huntington Library has the largest collection of artifacts and documents from Jamestown, as in Jamestown, Virginia. It was the first permanent settlement by the British in North America, before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. And unlike Plymouth, Jamestown was not founded by families fleeing religious persecution. These were dudes out to make a buck.
3: So it's 1606. The English would love nothing better than to launch a big program of colonization just like Spain or France. King James I of England is watching how the Spanish are just cleaning up in the New World. They seem to be drowning in gold. And the English want a piece of the pie. The problem is they did not have the money because the British government was not headed by an absolute monarch. Absolute monarchies, like Spain, could just decree that funding go to
2: missions to reap piles of gold in the New World. King James of England had no such power. So basically, he had to privatize colonization. He
3: outsourced it to private investors. Namely, the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company of London labored under the misapprehension, as it turns out, uh, that America was rich in gold and precious metals. So the Virginia Company thought it was going to get a huge return on its investment. They also labored
2: under the misapprehension that England would get a lot more newly minted Protestants out of this.
3: They sold the venture to investors as a moral crusade. It was not just an exercise in greed. What they wanted to do is to create a plantation. That's a plantation in the sense of a permanent station of English Protestants. And
2: quick before the Catholics get to them! And the English thought Christianity would be an easy sell. They were basing their assumptions on romantic accounts from earlier European visitors. Olga showed me an etching from a Frenchman who had visited Virginia and depicted the Pachapé people, who are part of the Powhatan Confederacy. It's pretty
3: whitewashed. Look at this figure. Yeah, can He, you he, describe l- him? he looks lo- almost Roman. Yeah, he's got like a toga uh, kind, of kind of... There's kind of a, of a toga sort of cloak. And so the British were like... Ah,
2: see, these are basically Roman philosophers, just tending to their idyllic fields of crop. We shall sail to them and get along great and trade riches and bring them into the light. So for money and land, and God and country, and really just to get out of crowded, dirty, overpopulated London, the men set sail to this beautiful, organized, perfectly cultivated farmland just waiting for them to make money and to do good while making it, which, I don't know, Sounds like the line a lot of modern companies are touting now. Jamestown was, arguably, the seed of the American entrepreneurial spirit. A spirit which would sprout onward in time and westward in place, which means that the story of Jamestown is the beginning of a lot of the grand history in the halls of Huntington Gardens. This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed about what we learn when the things people build don't go according to plan. This first season is called Utopian. It's about the perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. But many of these utopian attempts started with noble intentions, to solve the problems of nature or government or religion, issues still relevant to people seeking answers about how to live in the world today. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman, and I certainly grew up hearing a version of the story of Jamestown and the Virginia Company. This is, of course, one of the totally kick-ass songs from the 1995 Disney animated movie Pocahontas. I was four when it came out, but I had it on VHS and I watched it again and again. And in a lot of ways, in the popular imagination, the story of Jamestown has been equated with the story of Pocahontas. This is Irene with my Lauren Bacall voice. (laughs) (laughs) I know, people are going to hear this voice and and not recognize you. It'll be kind of a fun reveal. (laughs) Yes. This is Irene Bedard, the voice of Disney's Pocahontas. What? What did you say?
0: My name is Pocahontas.
2: Talking to Irene, it was hard to figure out how she felt about the movie. There seemed to be a lot of mixed feelings. After all, Irene is Native American herself. I grew up uh, being called Pocahontas in a derogatory way. Irene said that the movie's writers listened to her, and asked for her input. But of course, the plot itself ended up oversimplified.
0: History, of course, is always told from the victors. And this was an easy way to kind of portray the, the good Indians who helped the masterful settlers who, you know, created the beautiful America that we now live in.
2: In the Disney telling of Pocahontas, it's framed as a love story. The strapping John Smith gets off this boat in the New World, falls in love with the native princess Pocahontas in this Romeo and Juliet kind of way, and a kind of peace is made between the English and the local Powhatan tribe. We cling to this love story, even though it's very transparently not true. She was only 10 years old, 9 or 10, when John Smith came to the village. In historical accounts... Pocahontas was kind of the cool neighborhood kid. She was very spunky and friendly and was always doing cartwheels, and everyone in Jamestown was happy to see her. She actually helped John Smith learn Algonquin, or a dialect of Algonquin that the Powhatan spoke. So obviously, John Smith was also a real person.
1: That's right. I'm not about to let you boys have all the fun.
2: Aside from being a studly cartoon voiced by Mel Gibson, John Smith was extremely significant, historically. If you think about the story of North American history, like the Bible, then George Washington was kind of like the Abraham. And John Smith was
4: the Adam. And here's why. When they got their kind of marching orders to go to Virginia, um, all of the laws, the organization of the society and the leaders of that society were written down and put in a box
2: Kathleen Donegan is a professor of English at UC Berkeley and the author of Seasons of Misery, Catastrophe and Colonial Settlement in Early America. She says the idea was Jamestown would be run by council, the names in the box, and the council would elect a president who would govern the colony. The box was sealed, and it was only to be open when the ships reached Virginia.
4: Because they didn't want them to argue while they were at sea, and they didn't want any kind of um, arguments to erupt during the journey. Although clearly some kind of argument erupted at some point, because in
2: 1607, John Smith arrived in Virginia in chains.
5: (laughs) Right, on the ship, yes, for insubordination, right? (laughs) This is
2: Karen Cooperman. She's a historian who wrote the book on Jamestown, The Jamestown Project. She and Kathleen Donegan will be our two experts here. So, the ship arrives, and to everyone's surprise, when the men get out and they open the box, they find John Smith's name, this rowdy guy they had to lock up.
5: Smith was the only person named to the council who wasn't of high rank, social or military rank. And the idea that he thought he knew what should be done, I'm sure, was rankled these people.
2: And here's the thing that we like to imagine as so deeply American about John Smith. He was this common guy. And it turned out in time that he was a pretty decent diplomat. He learned Algonquin. He got to know the different tribes.
4: He eventually became president of the colony. What John Smith understood is that in this new venture, that authority was going to be made up of something different. It was going to be made up of experience. It was going to be made up of what you knew what you could accomplish, how you could learn, who you could manipulate, that those were going to be the bases of authority. And not anything that came through bloodlines and not anything that came through land and not anything that came through institutions, but things that came through experience. And he was right. In the colony, there were some fancy men of upper
2: classes who were like, Ahem, I told you, I don't work. And John Smith had none of
4: that. John Smith was the one who said, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that was a radical thing to say to the people who were in charge in Jamestown. Although, eventually, even he who worked also did not eat.
2: The Jamestown colonists were military men. They didn't have the skills to actually create a settlement. The council's first letter back to the Virginia Company in late June 1607 reads like a kid writing to their parents from summer camp, trying to sound happy, but actually having a terrible time. In that first letter, the leaders praise the land they chose and say they have a good store of wheat, but sign off your poor friends. Eventually, those stores ran out. The work itself slowly transitioned to begging for food. Not growing it or hunting for it, begging for it. Because they never had plans to grow their own food.
4: They really thought that Native Americans would give them food. Oh my God. <laughs> they thought that that—there's a very famous line from a historian, um, Edmund Morgan, who writes about this, who says, that is not what you came to Virginia for. He says, you still didn't get around to planting too much corn.
2: The men of Jamestown had a mix of vulnerability, starvation, and arrogance, a truly toxic combination. And these colonizers are getting hungrier and hungrier, and drought comes,
5: and winter comes. They're constantly sending boats, first up the James River and then up up to the Potomac, constantly looking, searching, looking for food. And in one case, Captain John Smith says that as they forced this Native group to give them food and as they pulled away, they saw the women and children on the riverbank weeping because Food was so short for them because of the disastrous drought. Men
2: are dying. 104 men landed in May of 1607. By the end of the year, only 38 were still alive. And this does not make the Virginia Company look good. They've got to save face for their many bondholders in England. There's serious investment in this endeavor from wealthy citizens and the government, and they cannot blow it. On Damage Control, the Virginia company sends over more men, along with new leadership and new plans. They put all the leaders and the new plans on one ship, and then all the men on other ships. And that one ship, the one with the leadership and the rules, it gets wrecked in Bermuda. But all the other ships, with all the men, they arrive in Virginia.
4: There are 300 new men now in Jamestown with no leadership, no laws, no provisions, nothing. Just these 300 men, which came to be known as the headless remnant, right? The head was crashed. These were the headless remnant. So here come 300 lawless, rowdy men into what is John Smith's Virginia. Now
2: these scores of new men also need to be fed. And these men are restless and upset and starving and hard to control. To try to keep relative peace, John Smith tries to separate the men in various posts. One day, he visits an especially rowdy one.
4: John Smith gets back in his boat, goes back down the river to Jamestown. And it was during that trip down river that there was gunpowder on his lap. That a match flew into the gunpowder and the gunpowder exploded in his lap, maiming him for life. At that point, he had to return to England.
2: So John Smith is gone. And from there, things are about to get bad. Very bad. But that's for after the break. The Virginia Company is starting to look terrible. John Smith has come back maimed, and the stories of violence and deprivation are leaking back home to England. And so, like any modern startup, they do that thing of blaming the contractors. Like, the Virginia Company is not at fault, it's these guys, they're no good. And now, filling in John Smith's place was a Don Jr. of a man named George Percy.
4: George Percy was a younger son in an aristocratic family who came to Virginia uh, hoping to make a name and a fortune for himself.
2: This was in 1609, by the way. And George Percy had never been a leader of anything before.
4: He was uh, totally dependent on his older brother, who was the Earl, for uh, any kind of money or any kind of support. He is not John
2: Smith. He thinks all the tribes are the same. He doesn't know how to speak with them. He's not prepared. The camp descends into chaos. All hell breaks loose. The starving men lash out and ruthlessly slaughter the women and the children of the tribes around them. They're cruel and angry and delirious, and so the Powhatan Confederacy cuts off food supply to Jamestown. The English, after all, are begging for food and then killing in cold blood, and they seem to be only growing in number. These dangerous men must Be contained. And the Powhatan essentially say that if any English leave their fort, they'll be murdered. And they were. The Powhatan would kill colonists, tie them to posts, and, tauntingly, stuff their mouths with bread. There was no food for the begging living. So this was the start of the starving time. It was only a few months from the fall of 1609 to the spring of 1610. And in this time, Out of the 500 men now in Jamestown, only 60 survive.
4: Percy says that first they ate dogs, they ate cats, they ate rats, they ate vermin, they ate any living thing uh, that was in the fort. Then they ate the leather off their shoes, they boiled their belts and sucked them. Then it got to the point where, he says, they licked the blood off the faces of their dying men. So if you can imagine that, Can you imagine someone lying down, dying, and you come and you crawl up to them and lick the blood off their face because that's how starving you are? And finally, it um, ended in cannibalism, both of English bodies and of Native American bodies. They were digging bodies out of the grave to eat them. Meanwhile,
2: back in Bermuda, the leaders that were shipwrecked, the head of the headless remnant, they were actually fine. The Spanish had populated the island with pigs, which they lived on, and it was beautiful and the living was relatively easy. In fact, some even wanted to stay in Bermuda, but dutifully, they built new ships and continued their journey to Jamestown. They arrived there in May 1610, and it's just hell.
4: They came and they say the gates were off the hook, that even approaching it, the gates were off the hook, the palisades were torn down. I mean, if they've come from their own shipwreck, they're coming into an absolute wreck, even visually as they look at what the Virginia fort looks like. The
2: fort has been ripped apart. The men, cadaverous and quite literally out of their minds, hardly look like men anymore. They had burned their own buildings for firewood. They had eaten their colleagues. It was as if the colony had been taken with an autoimmune disease. It had attacked itself beyond the point of repair. The newly arrived leaders decide immediately to pack up and leave.
4: The, the leader, um, Thomas Gates, stood there and beat a drum. He doesn't want there to be chaos and riot on the way out. So they're beating the drum on the way out, they go onto the ship, and they leave. Marching them in step like
2: skeleton soldiers. One, two, one, two, one, two, into the ship. They go back to England, they go out to sea. Imagine them, the salty Atlantic air whipping their hair, their faces pointed to Europe, back to home. At last, These men had long given up dreaming of piles of gold, of the glory of furthering their family names or Protestantism or the values of England. Fuck that. They just wanted food on the table. Maybe they'll marry. Maybe they'll have children. They could have a quiet life. This nightmare can all be forgotten, and they can go back to being Englishmen. But then comes the craziest twist in this story. Because it's not over.
4: What happens now is that there's another ship that is coming from England to Virginia that no one knows about. The Virginia Company had sent more
2: reinforcements over to Virginia. These guys just refused to give up. And this new ship intercepts the fleeing men. And this new ship says, nope, you're not going to England. Turn around. We
4: are all going back to Jamestown. So now they turn around. These men who have been through Starving Time, who have been in the fort, who have been through the nadir, who have been cannibals, now are turning around going back to Virginia.
2: And now this new leadership is extremely aggressive, and the men are traumatized and livid. The men come back to attack Virginia full
4: of fresh fury. And then they take Virginia with a vengeance. And that is the beginning of the First Anglo-Powhatan War. The First Anglo-Powhatan
2: War was in 1610. And in some ways, it set the template for all subsequent warfare between the English and the indigenous Americans. Because it was a level of ruthlessness that could never be recovered from. Why do we care what these colonists did? Why do we care about their feelings? What does their suffering matter?
4: Yeah, this is a really hard question. What does their suffering matter? These men who committed such incredible atrocities, who began what ended up being a genocide that created the nation, what do we care about their sufferings? So it's not necessarily to sympathize with these characters from history because they are not sympathetic characters in the least but it's not to look past them either and to understand that in the complicate that the complications of history require us to think very hard about difficult things and that's one reason to go deeply into the history of jamestown and be willing to stay there in that space of failure for a good long time
2: today in this ted talk world There are a million hagiographies of companies like the Virginia Company. Companies that move fast and break things, that ask forgiveness, not permission, that fail gloriously before they can succeed gloriously. But it's worth sitting in the failure of Jamestown, because something happened in that very moment of failing.
4: Not the aftermath of the failure, not the recovery from the failure, not the reinvention from the failure, but the failure itself actually produced something.
2: And what it produced is something we're still living with. The failure was traumatizing and violent, and it provided the template for settlement in the U.S. It provided the very first hints that this colony would become something separate from England. Because... In the light of such colossal devastation, these colonists simply could not relate to the lives they once had.
4: It was at that moment, at the moments of greatest failure, that the colonial self recognized how far it was from the British self. It's when colonials looked at themselves and realized that they were something different, that they were now colonial. And that that was produced directly out of the failure, not out of a recovery from failure, but produced out of the failure itself, the experience of failure.
2: These were the foundations of American colonial identity. And John Smith wrote about it in his book, The General History of Virginia, New England and the Summer Isles. And he wrote about the failures and shortcomings of Virginia, although clearly his accounts weren't harrowing enough to
3: deter more people from coming. The title of the book is A History and the idea of a history that all the troubles were in the past. John Smith's history was a bestseller, full of excitement and adventure, all
2: starring himself as the main character. In fact, his book became kind of a manual for those who wanted to leave England for Virginia. Olga showed me the Huntington Library's
3: copy of John Smith's history. There's a little note here. Someone wrote that note in the margin.
2: Yes, warrants,
3: because he's discussing warrants. And the person uh, who had this book made little notes. Apparently, that was somebody who was preparing to leave for Virginia. So the book uh, contributed to the increased flow of immigrants to Virginia. John Smith's writing
2: paved the way for the pilgrims at Plymouth and generations of families and farmers to come
5: to this new land of promise. He's the first person who says, essentially, a middle-class society is what we need in America. Jamestown eventually refashioned itself as a middle-class
2: society. They imported wives for the colonists, they learned to grow tobacco, and they began to become self-sufficient. This became a repeatable formula for success. Which brings up such an interesting, I mean, a fairly obvious but very interesting question when you say, you know, when you say something's a failure, it's like failure for whom?
4: Failure for whom? That's exactly right. It's a failure for whom? I mean, Plymouth, you know, ended up recovering from its mortality crisis quite soon in the game, you know, a couple years into the game. So then Plymouth was a success, a success for whom? You know, ask the Pequot. So it's, uh, yes, this is when you're talking about failure and success, that always has to be the next question for whom.
0: I think it's really important to, even as we live today, and we live today in this, in this era of
2: what is the truth. Irene Bedard again.
0: It's really just a matter of um, being really careful about the stories that we tell and, and to
2: find out where that perspective is from. The Huntington Library is a 20-minute drive from the Disney Animation Studio. These two stories from Virginia are archived on the other side of the continent, so close to each other. But of course, John Smith is the author of his own story, and there is no source of Pocahontas' own writing or words. What we know about her has been passed down through oral histories or recorded by the English, who were far from neutral. But we do know that Pocahontas wasn't even her real name. Her name was Matoaka.
5: She hid that name, believing it would bring her harm to share it. Once she was baptized, they said, okay, now you can know her native name, you know, her real name, uh, because it apparently no longer had any power.
2: Although it's not like Pocahontas ever had very much power among the English. Of course, in the Disney version, it's not mentioned that her father had moved her to another village in the Confederacy, far away from Jamestown. Many historians believe that Pocahontas was also married and possibly had a child. During that first Anglo-Powhatan war, someone from Jamestown had the idea to kidnap Pocahontas and use her as a bargaining chip. But then they decided not to let her go. To the English, she was more useful as an agent for their own interests. The reference has always been the piece of Pocahontas,
0: but that is because she was an ambassador um, after being kidnapped and, you know, taken away from her husband and child. In
2: 1614, Pocahontas got remarried, this time to an Englishman named John Rolfe. Her name became Rebecca Rolfe. She converted to Christianity, sailed to England, met the queen, had a son. She died in her early 20s. When Irene was in her early twenties, she was Disney's Pocahontas, reclaiming that name that had become derogatory in the mouths of her childhood tormentors. The role was a chance for Irene to turn this name into one of the first Disney princesses of color. It's incredibly powerful. It's Disney, and and it's it's legendary, and it's something that
0: goes on for generations. And I and I knew that it was going to have this legacy. Um, and, and so it was, it was a, a, a real hard thing for me because I, I was there with a, lot of, with a lot of the leaders of the American Indian movement. Um, I just thought, what a great heroine for girls around the world to see this. But I, I do remember saying, I, I'm just a girl from Alaska, and I cannot speak for all Native
2: Americans. No one can. Not even Pocahontas herself even though European settlers and their descendants want her to, so badly.
4: And that's the story that we need to tell, right, in order to assuage all kinds of guilt for, you know, genocide and disenfranchisement. Um, America loves me. Pocahontas loves me.
2: When Irene was touring around for premieres of Pocahontas in all the major cities of the world, she found herself in England, and she wanted to visit the final resting place, of Rebecca Rolfe.
0: They, I think, set it up, in their thought process anyway, as like, you know, a press, you know, event. And I told them, no, that I wasn't going to do that. That for me, it was that I was going to go and
2: offer tobacco and say a prayer. So that's what I did. How is she addressed in her, in her grave?
0: Yeah, I think it says, it says Rebecca Rolfe,
2: but it also has Pocahontas in there makes me want to cry right now. <laughs> 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 oh. History is written by the victors as a series of successes. The story of Jamestown has been pushed aside as a foundational myth in favor of the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock. And a lot of this had to do with the triumph of the North in the Civil War. Because, of course, they opted to emphasize thanksgiving and the refugee story in New England over the southern venture capitalist endeavor at Jamestown, even though Jamestown was earlier and arguably a lot more telling. The failures are the spaces between the lines, the little gaps where the human stories really took place, outside of this narrative of an ongoing march of progress that reaches achingly, towards utopia. Another utopia, in another country, in another time, India, 1966. Chandigarh was a dream of secular modernism in post-partition India, and also the source of the chairs in Courtney Kardashian's house. But we'll get to that next week. Thanks to Thea M. Page in the Huntington Library and to historian Helen Roundtree, whose exceptional research on the life of Pocahontas and the Powhatan Confederacy informed this episode. Nice Try, Utopian is produced by Megan Kinane. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Gautham Shrikashen is our engineer. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Special thanks to Diana Buds, senior story producer at Curbed, for her editorial support. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kerwa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Subscribe to Nice Try for free on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Avery Truffleman, and there's no such thing as a
3: utopia.